Apparently, the shortest books list was a big hit. So today, I'm back with the sequel. I've got another top 10 list of the shortest books ever written. Here they are, number 10. Career opportunities for liberal arts majors. Not, not a lot of employers are looking for history degrees. Number nine, healthy fast food. That book has nothing in it because there is no such thing as healthy fast food. Number eight, Atlanta streets that never have any traffic. Not much ink on those pages for sure. Number seven, the Las Vegas Guide to Long Marriages. Doesn't take long to thumb through that book. Number six, the EPA cookbook, Spotted Owl Recipes. Again, this topic makes for a very skinny volume. Number five, this is my favorite, the Justin Bieber Guide to Field Dressing a Deer. Everything he knows about that is in that one volume. I doubt if he has gutted too many bucks in his lifetime. Number four, Out of My Price Range by Bill Gates. What a shame when there is nothing you can't afford. Number three, Facebook's Guide to Data Security. Just recently, this has jumped to the top of the list. Those Facebook folks are having a tough time running a tight ship. Number two, Anger Management by Nick Saban. Oh, cool, cool as a cucumber Nick is offering us his suggestion. Doesn't make for a long read. And the number one shortest book ever written, White House Employees with Job Security. Now that is a very, very short list. Well, this morning we're studying another short volume, the 14 verses of John's third letter. Third John is the shortest book in the Bible. And the names of four men appear in this book, John the Elder, Gaius, Demetrius, and a man who is held in not so flattering a light, a villain named Diotrephes. This is why I've entitled our study this morning after a movie from the 1980s, Three Men and a Baby. John, Gaius, and Demetrius are the men, while Diotrephes is the big baby. Well, let's read the letter, and then we'll study through it verse by verse. Third John begins, The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health, just as your soul prospers. For I rejoiced greatly when brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you, just as you walk in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Beloved, you do faithfully whatever you do for the brethren and for strangers who have borne witness of your love before the church. If you send them for forward on their journey in a manner worthy of God, you do well because they went forth for his namesake, taking nothing from the Gentiles. We therefore ought to receive such that we may become fellow workers for the truth. I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence among them, does not receive us. 
Therefore, if I come, I will call to mind his deeds, which he does, prating against us with malicious words. And not content with that, he himself does not receive the brethren and forbids those who wish to, putting them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. He who does good is of God, but he who does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has a good testimony from all and from the truth itself. And we also bear witness, and you know that our testimony is true. I had many things to write, but I do not wish to write to you with pen and ink. But I hope to see you shortly, and we shall speak face to face. Peace to you. Our friends greet you. Greet the friends by name. Third John begins, the elder. When John wrote these letters, he was no longer the younger of the twelve apostles. He was now Christianity's elder statesman. John had outlived his contemporaries. You could say he was the only surviving member of the original band. He was the man who had been with Jesus. He was an eyewitness. He had seen it all. And he was now in Ephesus overseeing the spread of the gospel among the Gentiles. You see, John was a man with some street cred. He had earned his bona fides. His enemies had tried to boil him in oil to get him to recant his faith. But John had refused, and God had delivered him. And now when the apostle John walks into a room, people take notice. When he speaks, they listen. Everywhere he goes, folks yearn to hear from this man. See, John is not just an elder As he introduces himself here, he is the elder. He loves the church and he intends to use his clout for the good of God's people. He warns, teaches, exhorts, and encourages. I think you're a blessed person if there's someone in your life that you look to as the elder. We all need to hear from a wise person. We all need to have the ear of a wise person. Someone we can trust. Someone who's been with Jesus and can help us get to know him as well. Well, John writes, the elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Now, 2 John was written to the elect lady. Now, 3 John is addressed to a man named Gaius. There are actually three Gaiuses mentioned in the New Testament. Acts chapter 19 speaks of Gaius of Macedonia one of Paul's travel companions. In Acts chapter 20, there is a Gaius from the town of Derbe, a man who lived in Galatia. And then in Romans 16 and in 1 Corinthians 1, a Gaius who lived in Corinth is spoken of. This was a man who hosted Paul in his home. Now this Gaius to whom John writes this letter could be either of those three or a different man altogether. We don't know. Whoever Gaius was, John loved him in truth. It's interesting, the Greek name Gaius, it means on earth. And the message that John sends to Gaius could indeed apply to anyone who presently lives on earth, on this fallen planet. I suppose 3 John is a letter from the elder to the earthlings. And John greets Gaius in verse 2. Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health, 
just as your soul prospers. Now, this was a common greeting in John's day. He prays that Gaius is healthy and thriving in every area of his life, both physically and spiritually. Yet here is a verse that over the years has been misinterpreted and because of an erroneous understanding has led thousands of Christians into serious error. What John intended as a simple greeting has been taken by many of the prosperity gospel proponents as a promise for perfect health and ultimate wealth for all Christians. The likes of Kenneth Copeland and Oral Roberts and even Joel Osteen have been chief culprits of this erroneous teaching. Oral Roberts, when he first came across 3 John verse 2, he said to his wife, Evelyn, now this means we're supposed to prosper, as if this verse were some guarantee. Oral claimed his whole Christian experience from then on grew out of his understanding of 3 John verse 2. Yet the problem with their interpretation is that the rest of the New Testament betrays such a simplistic understanding. Throughout the Bible, as well as what we know of Christian experience, there are countless examples of devout believers in Jesus who have prospered spiritually while lacking financially and suffering physically. In fact, read Hebrews chapter 11, the chapter of faith. It's full of folks who were imprisoned, scourged, tortured, mocked, made destitute, yet gained God's approval through their overcoming faith. Surely God likes to give good gifts to His children, and at times He gives us a measure of good health and of more than adequate wealth. But He doesn't guarantee every Christian an unbroken stream of material blessing. Christians, like non-Christians, can get laid off and be challenged to pay their bills. Believers and unbelievers alike live in a, the same germ-infested world and sometimes grow ill. Being a Christian and abounding spiritually doesn't immunize us from poverty or from disease. To take what John meant as a good-intentioned greeting, just a simple wish for health and happiness as some ironclad promise is really shoddy Bible interpretation. It's reading more into the text than the author intended. Renowned Greek scholar Gordon Fee, he refutes the prosperity gospel's take on 3 John 2. He writes, To extend John's wish for Gaius to refer to financial and material prosperity for all Christians of all times is totally foreign to the text. John neither intended that, nor could Gaius have so understood it. Thus, it cannot be the plain meaning of the text. One of the first rules of hermeneutics, that is Bible interpretation, is to look at a verse in its historical and cultural and its literary context. It's a true statement. A text without a context will equal a pretext. Rather than some kind of doctrinal pronouncement, John is sending Gaius a common greeting here in verse 2. Gordon Fee refers to the opening of 3 John as the standard form of greeting in a personal letter of antiquity. Thus, when John wrote, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers, he was sending him a simple greeting of hope and happiness. 
And John gets to the body of his letter in verse 3. For I, testif- for I rejoiced greatly when brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you, just as you walk in the truth. Now this Gaius was a man known for walking in truth. He had earned a reputation. Integrity was his middle name. Gaius lived his life in light of the truth. I'm sure he loved people, but he also loved the truth. And he wanted what he did to correspond to the truth he knew. Years ago, Earl Weaver was a baseball manager for the Baltimore Orioles. Earl was known for his violent temper. Once he threw a temper tantrum in the dugout. He knocked over several water coolers, threw whatever equipment he could get his hands on. Well, on the team that year was a born-again Christian, a young man named Pat Kelly. Well, after Weaver pitched his fit, Pat spoke up. He said, Coach, I hope you learn to walk with the Lord. The old coach wasn't too receptive. He snapped back, and I hope you learn to walk with the bases loaded. But Pat Kelly was right. Being a Christian is about walking with the Lord, not just talking about the Lord. You know, throughout the Bible, the Christian life is referred to as a walk. We're to walk in love, walk in faith, walk in the Spirit, walk as children of the light. Our life with Christ is not a run, nor is it a crawl. John calls it a walk. You know, when you run, you can lose focus. When you crawl, you're on the ground. You lack focus. But when you're talking and when you're taking a walk with someone, the focus is on the one you're with. Walking denotes a consistent, steady, forward progress. It's a fellowship. It's a step-by-step with someone you love. There's a gentle leading of each other. The time spent is refreshing and rejuvenating. Hey, is your life characterized as walking with the Lord? When people look on you, would they see that that's what you're doing? Well, if it is, you'll also walk in the truth. You see, you can't walk with the Lord without walking in His truth. This means you're trusting in and leaning on and applying the truths of God's Word to your everyday life. You are not walking with the Lord if you're living a lie. Gaius was a man known to walk in the truth. And John says in verse 4, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. And here's where I can relate. As a pastor, I have no greater joy than to watch the believers under my care in our fellowship progressing in their walk with Jesus. Your spiritual growth is my reward. You know, when you stand strong against temptation, or when you endure a stormy season with your faith intact, or when you go out of your way to befriend someone in need, or when you get involved in a ministry, I rejoice. It brings me great joy. Hey, if you want to send a little joy your pastor's way, don't send me flowers or candy. Maybe Braves tickets, but, but, but beyond that, if you want to send a little joy my way, walk in truth. 
do the right thing under difficult or stressful circumstances. That's what makes my heart rejoice. Verse 5 tells us, Beloved, you do faithfully whatever you do for the brethren and for strangers who have borne witness of your love before the church. Gaius had developed a name not only for walking in the truth, but of showing love to the brethren and even to strangers. And you know, this is the reputation that this church has earned. As some of you know, I travel a good bit these days to other churches. And Calvary Chapel Stone Mountain has gotten quite a reputation. The way you've hosted the pastors and the leaders at their annual conferences has been so impressive. And I have people who come up to me everywhere I go and thank me. They tell me of your love and how impressed they are with your eagerness to serve and your sacrificial spirit. They say that you're an example to their church. And when they talk about you like that, I feel like, John, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. This is the greatest compliment that a pastor can receive. Not that his teaching was interesting or that his jokes were funny. Like I ever get that, you know. Or that you're learning a lot. But the greatest compliment I receive is that sitting under my ministry is causing you to love more. That's the greatest compliment. Well, then John says in verse 6, If you send them forward on their journey in a manner worthy of God, you will do well. Because they went forth for his namesake, taking nothing from the Gentiles. And I'll never forget the first time that I read those words and that our church studied that verse. You know, we started Calvary Chapel Stone Mountain in 1980. We started teaching through the Bible in the book of Luke. And we kept going chapter by chapter. We started in September of 1980, and we kept going chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And by late 1982, we had studied through the New Testament, and we had gotten all the way to 3 John. It was our very first Wednesday night journey through the Bible. For your information, now in 2018, we're on our fifth time through the Bible. At the time, though, we were occupying a building. It was an old warehouse. We were there on a temporary basis. The owner wasn't charging us rent. He told me that if I got a liability policy, he'd just let us meet there until we found something else. Well, the weeks dragged on into months. There were few alternatives on the horizon. And that's when I read 3 John verse 6. They went forth for his namesake, taking nothing from the Gentiles. In other words, God doesn't want his people mooching off the world. He wants us to carry our weight. He wants us to pay our bills. As John puts it, he wants us traveling through life in a manner worthy of God. I was convicted by that verse. For in occupying that warehouse without paying any rent, I felt like we were taking from the Gentiles. We were drawing worldly support for a spiritual venture, and I felt it was the responsibility of God's people to pay their own freight. So that next week, totally unsolicited, I started sending the landlord a check for some rent. And understand, before we sent that first check, he didn't want us to want to rent us the building. That's why we were temporary. He wanted more money than we could afford. 
But after a couple of months of me sending him the money, he called me and he asked if we wanted to sign a lease. I believed it was God's blessing on our obedience. We all learned an important lesson through that experience. The church doesn't need to apply for neighborhood grants or dip into the community chest. God wants to fund his work through his people. See, he reserves for you and me and for all believers in Jesus the joys of giving and supporting his work. We don't need to take anything from the Gentiles. We need to support through our tithes and offerings what God is doing. Which leads to verse 8. We therefore ought to receive such that we may become fellow workers for the truth. And here's a beautiful principle. When you give your money or your time or your support or your prayers to a missionary or to a pastor or to a church, you're actually investing in that ministry. You're partnering in that particular work, and thus you're sharing in the spiritual rewards of their labors. You know, if you buy stock in a corporation, you're making an investment that you hope is going to yield a dividend. If the company does well, you'll do well. And the same is true with your offering. You're making an investment when you give an offering. The spiritual accomplishments of Calvary Chapel Stone Mountain get credited to you when you invest in this ministry. You share in what I do, and in what the staff does, and in what the school does, and in what our missionaries do, and in what we all do together. As a result, you play a part and get a reward for ministries in places where you never personally participate. Well, in verse 9, John shifts gears from commendation to now warning. For he says, I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence among them, does not receive us. Now what church? We don't know. And who was this Diotrephes? Again, in one sense, we don't know. But in another sense, I've met this guy. You probably have too. For sadly, there is a diatrophies in almost every church. I read once where the average American eats 68 hot dogs every year. Are you above or below average? 68 hot dogs. That's a lot of hot dogs. Well, diatrophies didn't eat hot dogs. He was a hot dog. Here was a man who loved the limelight. He loved to show off. He always wanted to be the center of attention. He loved being the star. He wanted all eyes on him. He wanted the preeminence. It's like what was said of Teddy Roosevelt. He wanted to be the bride at every wedding and the corpse at every funeral. How's that for garnering the attention? Just this week I was on the phone with a fellow pastor when the thought hit me. Wow, pastors sure do like to talk about themselves. I hoped that he wasn't on the other end of the line thinking the same thing about me. Reminds me of a comment Woodrow Wilson once said of a proud associate. He was the only man I have ever known who could strut while sitting down. Well, this Diotrephes could strut. He liked to exalt himself and take control. 
Diotrephes learned early on how to manipulate and intimidate and dominate. And when he came into the church, he brought along his attitude. Diotrephes was a dictator. Here was the self-appointed church sheriff. He thought nothing should go on in his town, even in Jesus' name, without his approval. And it was his desire for the preeminence that made Diotrephes jealous. He was threatened by the ministry of other believers. This is why Diotrephes refused to receive John. Verse 10 tells us that he made vicious slurs to discredit John the elder. Diotrephes was insecure. He put down John to build up himself. Do you ever do that? Put other people down to make yourself look good? Diotrephes was acting like a big baby. In a sense, Diotrephes was the gang leader, and he didn't want the elder John infringing on his turf. Bible expositor A.T. Robertson once wrote an article for a Southern Baptist magazine. He described what could have been a modern-day description of the conduct of this man Diotrephes, but without naming him. Well, in the weeks following the release of the article, 25 Baptist church leaders across the state wrote letters to the editor canceling their subscriptions to the magazine. They all claimed Robertson had been pointing his finger at them. They incriminated themselves. In truth, they had been Diotrephes. It's sad, but Diotrephes still plagues the church. When one man sets himself up as the dictator and tells God's people, often even God, what he can and can't do, the work of the Holy Spirit is grieved and quenched. Rather than be a channel for blessing, he becomes a bottleneck. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 20, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Christian leaders need to be servants, not sergeants. Disciples, not dictators. It's been said the challenge of a Christian leader is to lead and not drive. Inspire and not dominate. Cause respect and not fear. Win support and not opposition. There's only one master, only one boss for the believer, and his name is Jesus Christ. Well, John says in verse 10, Therefore, if I come, I will call to mind his deeds, which he does, prating against us with malicious words. Diotrephes slandered the elder, prating against him with malicious words. Can you imagine? This was the elder John. John was a loving leader. He would have rejoiced to see Diotrephes walk in truth, but instead he told lies. He even lied about John. Rather than respect John's obvious God-given authority, he tried to discredit him. He says, and not content with that, he himself does not receive the brethren and forbids those who wish to, putting them out of the church. And what he did to John, Diotrephes did to others. He opposed anyone else in the church who tried to challenge his authority. For this man, Diotrephes, it was his way or the highway. Here was a so-called elder who refused to allow for dissenting opinion. He made no room for people who disagreed. 
Diotrephes was a cult leader in the making. And notice what John says about Diotrephes at the beginning of verse 10. When John comes, he's going to put this guy in his place. Don't you wish you could have been present for that encounter? Boy, church people getting together and sparks flying. John had to put his foot down. The elder had to put the elitist in his place. And this is what sometimes has to be done with the diatrophies. Sometimes church feuds and potential takeovers have to be combated with a face-to-face showdown. It's not fun. No godly person relishes a fight. But like it or not, not every church squabble gets settled peacefully. Pastors can't be afraid of a confrontation. Verse 11 is good wisdom. Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. He who does good is of God, but he who does evil has not seen God. Instead of a Diotrephes, John encourages us to be a Demetrius. Notice verse 12. For Demetrius has a good testimony from all and from the truth itself. And we also bear witness And you know that our testimony is true. Nothing is really said of this Demetrius other than he was a good example. He had a good testimony from all. Nobody had a bad word to say about Demetrius. If we contrast Demetrius with Diotrephes, implied is that Demetrius was a humble and gracious and servant leader. Rather than seek the limelight, he was willing to work backstage. Rather than make demands, he built consensus. Rather than exercise control, he relied on influence. Rather than demand, he reasoned. It was a credit to have the respect of someone like the elder John, but quite frankly, everyone respected Demetrius. Reminds me of a story told by the dean of Christian musicians, Bill Gaither. In his book, I Almost Missed the Sunset, Bill talks about the early years of his marriage. He and his wife, Gloria, were teaching school in his hometown in Indiana. The newlyweds wanted to buy a piece of land and build a house. Bill noticed some grazing land south of town that was owned by a 92-year-old retired banker named Mr. Yule. The man owned the land. He owned a lot of land around town, and the rumor was that he wasn't selling He used the excuse that he had promised the land to the farmers so they could graze their cattle. Well, one day, Bill and Gloria, they went to see Mr. Yule. Bill introduced himself and asked about the property. Mr. Yule peered over the top of his bifocals. He said, not selling. The farmers need it for grazing. Bill replied, well, that's what we've heard. But we teach school in the area and we hope to settle here. We thought you might be interested in helping us out. The old man asked him, he said, what did you say your name was? Bill, Bill Gaither. Hmm, any relationship to Grover Gaither? Yes, sir, he was my granddad. Bill writes, Mr. Yule put down his paper, took off his glasses. Interesting, Grover Gaither was the best worker I ever had on my farm. Full day's work for a day's pay, so honest. What did you say you wanted? Well, to make a long story short, the Gaithers bought the 15 acres at a price much less than they expected. 
In his story, Bill fast forwards three decades. He and his son Benji are now taking a stroll on that same beautiful Indiana pasture land when Bill says to his boy, Benji, you've had this wonderful place to grow up through nothing that you've done, but because of the good name of a great granddad you never met. Oh, the value of a Demetrius-like reputation. Proverbs 22 verse 1 tells us, A good name is more desirable than great riches. To be esteemed is better than silver or gold. Diotrephes wanted to be noted, and he was. His name lives in infamy. Demetrius was just happy to walk in the truth, and his reputation has now succeeded him for the last 2,000 years. Verse 13, I had many things to write, but I do not wish to write to you with pen and ink. But I hope to see you shortly, and we shall speak face to face. This is not just a problem with pen and ink. It's also a problem with keyboard and smartphone. Emails and text leave much to be desired when it comes to communication. Have you ever been misunderstood via an email? Face-to-face is always the safest means of messaging. And this was the elder John's desire. He would travel to Gaius and he would speak to him personally. John concludes, peace to you. Our friends greet you. Greet the friends by name. You know, John has been reflecting on the love of Jesus. And remember what was said of Jesus, the good shepherd, in John 10? It says, the sheep hear his voice. And he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When John tells them to greet his friends by name, he is exemplifying the love of Jesus. Realize Jesus loves you personally. He loves you intimately. He loves you specifically. He knows you. He understands what makes you tick. He recognizes your peculiarities. You've heard the statement, I love humanity. I just can't stand people. That's not Jesus. He cares for us as individuals. He doesn't mind getting involved with you and I personally. In fact, it's been said, Jesus loves each one of us as if there were only one of us to love. So, let's walk with God and walk in truth. Let's receive each other in love and take nothing from the Gentiles. Let's be a Demetrius, not a Diotrephes. And let's love in truth and build a good reputation.